Well, this is the final day of speaking of campaigning. This is the final day of campaigning ahead of the midterm elections in the U.S. All 435 seats in the House of Representatives are for grabs, as are 35 Senate seats and 36 governorships. Uh, a lot at stake here. Republicans only need five seats to take control of the House of Representatives and could take the Senate as well. You know, that one's tied at 50-50. The uh, Democrats have the tiebreaker. Uh, and it could have a major impact on the final two years of President Biden's first term. Here's what Joe Biden had to say tonight. This election isn't a referendum. It's a choice. It's a choice between two fundamentally different visions of America. I've said from the beginning, my objective when I ran was to build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out. And I tell you what, it's a fundamental shift. And it's working compared to the mega, mega Republican trickle-down economics. Joe Biden tonight talking economy. Well, the Republican Party is transformed while well, under... Uh, former President Trump is not on the ballot. He did announce tonight he'll be making a big announcement uh, in about eight days from now. He's not on the ballot, but Trumpism, as it's called, is thriving in Republican ranks. Talk of stolen elections, other conspiracy theories uh, are rife. Reckoning with January 6th, the attack on the U.S. Capitol is really a non-starter. Dissenting voices have been quickly shown the exit. Um, Marco Rubio of Florida had this to say tonight. We have one job left to do. And that is that turn out and vote and vote in big numbers. These people don't just need to lose. They need to lose by a lot. They need to get the message. We will never be a socialist country. We will never be led by crazy people. You will not take us down the road of Marxism. You will not destroy America. We are going to leave our children what we inherited from our parents, what they deserve to inherit. Marxism. Interesting. I mean, it's an election. Rhetoric is rhetoric. But joining me now is Robert Draper. He's a writer for the New York Times Sunday Magazine and National Geographic. He's also author of the newly, newly released Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks for having me on, Ben. The U.S. I mean, the midterms are tomorrow, so, so it feels like everything that you write about in that book is about to be put to the test um, soon. How, how, how do you feel about it going in? Are you looking to see if a lot of the things that you were positing in the book are about to happen? Well, yeah, I think the to me, the crucial question is not so much if um, uh, Republicans regain control of the House of Representatives. I think it's very likely that that will happen, almost a foregone conclusion. Uh, the, the more salient question is, what will they do with that power? And, and more acutely, um, will their attempt to be uh, to govern um, be... Uh, sort of through the perspective of um, behavior that I think is, um, as I reference in the book, delusional. That is to say, um, will um, its uh, legislative agenda be supercharged by notions of um, uh, elections being stolen, uh, the border being wide open and the great replacement theory being underway, um, COVID vaccines being um, uh, somehow a bad thing, uh, and and other lies that tens of millions of Americans um, who are members or who vote Republican um, have been subjected to and have ultimately swallowed whole. So, you know, the, to me, the, the the larger question of my book, Ben, really is, um, you know, it's what happens to a country, what happens to its democracy when one of its two um, um, uh, uh, functioning political parties is really in the sway of delusions. And, um, and that's what we'll see put to the test if the Republicans regain power. 
a term you use in the book that's fascinating because it speaks to just how quickly the change has, has happened um, is the Star Wars bar of, of, of representatives, you know, that people with more, you know, there's always people with more um, extreme views that are elected, in, but, but often they're, they're sidelined within their own parties. And, and you put it that in a space, in a very short period of time, um, those became sort of the mainstream views of the party. How did that happen? Well, not overnight. And, and I think in a lot of ways, um, what set much of this in motion um, was the election of Barack Obama and the cultural, racial and economic anxieties that that um, historical fact triggered. I think that, there, you know, you, if you go back even further, you can certainly see some antecedents to what we're now witnessing in the Republican Party, but definitely um, what catalyzed these anxieties, uh, what put them into overdrive, I should say, was the election of Donald Trump uh, to the presidency and his exploitation of those anxieties for his own political benefit. And and uh, um, and so, you know, the people that w- that you're referencing, Ben, who we might have ordinarily imagined to be total outliers in our political system, most Star Wars bars inhabitants basically are people who um, have such proximity ideologically and in other ways to Donald Trump that they have managed to grab his coattails and, you know, under his wings, um, uh, sort of ascend to power themselves. And and uh, in particular, I focus on a woman named Marjorie Taylor Greene, a freshman congresswoman from the state of Georgia, who um, by anyone's reckoning prior to the Trump era would have certainly been regarded as this very, very marginal, very extreme character who uh, would attract attract a certain amount of attention in that sort of can't take your eyes off the car wreck way, but who otherwise would be inconsequential. But under Donald Trump, um, that performative extremism has in fact become a very effective way to exploit these grievances, anxieties, to the extent that Marjorie Taylor Greene is now one of the most influential characters in the Republican Party, something that would have been unthinkable a few years ago. You bring up an example of, because for listeners to know, this isn't just you thinking about this stuff from afar. These are all interviews. You've, you've interviewed most almost all of these people, uh, both from the Republican Party as well as Republicans trying to move the party back towards the center, the Liz Cheney's and so forth. But you bring up a really interesting example of your father, because I think that's one of the things that a lot of people from the outside looking in think about. The Republican Party, to a lot of us, always represented what your father thought of it as, the Republican Party, sort of small-c conservative, about values, about the flag, nationalism, and so on. Um, and yet it seems to have disappeared so quickly. And I wonder, you spoke to lots of people who've tried to bring it back to the middle. What's happened? Why have they failed? Well, um, they failed because the most prominent exponent of that notion that Trump needed to be expunged from the party is a woman named Liz Cheney, an ascendant Republican figure, perhaps the most recognizable woman in Republican politics, uh, who um, whose trajectory went spiraling downwards, even as Marjorie Taylor Greene's was spiraling, was was um, soaring upwards. And so people look at Cheney, who um, now was crushed in her own Republican primary, has been exiled from, uh, pushed out of Republican leadership, exiled from her own party, will not have an office this January. And mainstream Republicans say, I don't want to get the Liz Cheney treatment. So their view is better not to challenge um, Trumpism, better not to challenge the president and his 
proximate warriors like um, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and uh, better to just go to ground, hope that they self-inhalate, hope that, that Trumpism, uh, this MAGA movement somehow dies out. But what they say over and over, what they certainly said to me is, look, you know, if I try to stand up to Trump and the things that he represents, that I'm going to get... Um, I'm going to get challenged in a Republican primary by a Trump loyalist, and I will get bashed to pieces. I will lose power, and the person who comes to Washington will be Trump on steroids. That's not good for anybody. Better instead that I just kind of um, keep my counsel and um, hope that this goes away, at which point I and other adults in the room will regain control of the party. That's the theory, but I do not understand quite um, how it works methodologically. Robert Draper is with us this half hour. He's a writer for the New York Times Sunday Magazine, a National Geographic author of Weapons of Mass Delusion, When the Republican Party Lost Its Mind. Uh, Donald Trump, of course, sits in very looms very large in the background of all of this, doesn't he? And you've met him. You've met him many times. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Do, how? Do, how did Trumpism survive without Trump? And and is he coming back? Do you think? Well, because um, Ben. Uh, Trump didn't invent Trumpism if what we mean by Trumpism is basically a populist demagoguery uh, which exploits uh, the grievances of um, a once ruling segment of the population that now feels like America as they know it is being piece by piece stripped away from them, which, by the way, I believe is why. Trump's claim that the election had been stolen from him was so potent um, because not only because they believed uh, like Trump, that Democrats were capable of something so malevolent as to um, uh, you know create this vast conspiracy that that would undermine an election, but also because metaphorically uh, this represented a greater sense of loss that they had been feeling. The aforementioned uh, once great America that was their America now being unrecognizable to them. So Trump, in a kind of visceral way seem to recognize this. It's real ironic, Ben, given that we're talking, after all, about a Manhattan real estate developer, a billionaire, um, who somehow uh, came to be seen by the non-college educated uh, white working man and woman of of middle America as uh, their true representative. It's, you know, the kind of thing you it's really, really hard to fathom until you you know start to break it down and realize that in a lot of ways they share um, the same enemies, which is much more crucial than what they had in common. Uh, and that uh, you know Trump himself had his own sort of um, resentments against um, a cultural elite of Manhattan that never really um, took to him, that always considered him a bit gauche. And so even as he craved their acceptance, um, he chafed. Uh, the inability to actually receive that. So that's that's really kind of set the stage for all this. this now as to what what we make of Trump now and what his immediate future will be. Um, the expectation is that he's going to announce any day now, uh, perhaps even tonight, um, that he's going to run um, in 2024. I, I'm certainly utterly convinced myself that he will do so in a 
painted himself into a corner where if he doesn't do so, then his relevancy um, uh, ceases or at least dwindles to near nothingness as attention then turns to whoever the Republican candidate, the new, um, you know, the standard bearer of the GOP will be. And um, and so Trump, who so craves uh, the attention and the power and the glory that he's had over the last few years is going to be loath to give that up. So um, so I think we have every reason to expect that he'll be announcing any day now. A lot of this book stemmed from your experiences on January the 6th, which was you were at the Capitol. Um, mm-hmm. and, and really, I mean, anybody who's ever covered a, a bigger story before knows what day one of a big story feels like, right? This was, I guess, day one for you. I yeah. mean, you've, you've written many of these in the past. Uh, but that day is still stuck with you, right? I mean, the, the, everything that transpired that day and the way the Republican Party l- views that day in the rearview mirror is really sort of the essence of what this is all about. Yeah, that's very aptly put, Ben. I mean, it's that day has stuck with me on every meaningful level, on a kind of you know emotional and psychological level. Uh, the trauma of having seen these policemen staggering in, beaten and and pepper sprayed uh, at this building that signifies you know a bastion of democracy, a place that I would go to several times a month, um, was. The kind of spectacle that I, as someone who also writes for National Geographic, might have expected to encounter in Somalia, Libya, Yemen, uh, Afghanistan, or other places that I visited, but not in the United States. So that was a kind of cognitive dissonance that was really, really traumatizing and sticks with me in a very unsettling way. But on top of that, it sticks with me because it's um, um, it was a moment when one would have expected the Republican Party to say, this is what we've wrought. You know, um, by fanning the flames of these election lies, uh, we uh, essentially um, rolled out the red carpet uh, to a couple of thousand people who stormed the Capitol and um, and attempted to overthrow uh, a democratically held election by physical force. And uh, this is not what our party's about. We can't have this. We should purge all of the elements that gave rise to this from our party right away. And that begins with saying to Donald Trump, um, you know, don't let the door hit you on your way out. But of course, that's not what happened at all. And instead, what we have seen is this kind of scattershot um, view of of January the sixth on the part of the the Republican Party that at times is um, uh, sort of mitigating what took place, being dismissive of its seriousness. At other times, saying, "Oh, it was serious, all right," but in fact, it was all staged by the FBI, um, or that perhaps, um, yeah, there was violence, but it was the violence of Antifa, and and uh, uh, and so. Um, instead of moving towards, you know, back towards a kind of normalcy, um, the Republican Party post January the 6th went deeper and deeper down this sinkhole of conspiratorial thinking and of a factually challenged parallel universe with a result that we now have tens of millions of Americans um, who identify as Republicans, who believe these things. And, and what's of real consequence to me, and I'll finish just on this thought, Ben, is that, that you know, at least traditionally, Americans, um, as diverse as our country is, have been brought together, have been unified by, by some kind of crisis, whether it's world war, whether it's depression, 
or whether it is um, uh, a terrorist attack as on September 11th. Uh, January the 6th was that moment, and yet all the moment did was deepen um, our polarities and um, and has divided us even more thoroughly than we were before that horrible event took place. Robert Draper, thank you so much. It's my pleasure, Ben.